Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. In our hospitals and psychiatric clinics, it has already begun. Increasing numbers of people are seeking help for mental health problems associated, in one way or another, with COVID-19. Professionals warn that the psychiatric effects of the pandemic will endure much longer than the physical ones. With COVID, we are going to experience a significant increase in mental health morbidity and mortality that will far surpass the medical consequences of the illness. Professor Fiona McNicholas is a consultant in child and adolescent psychiatry at Crumlin's Children's Hospital and my guest on today's podcast. She talks about the tsunami of mental health problems we face, the unexpected ways COVID-19 can harm our minds and the potential for technology to aid therapy in a time of social distancing. Fiona, a lot of the, the crisis has been focused on our physical health but what impact is coronavirus having on our mental health? Um, well, thanks for asking that, Deirdre. And I guess just to preface, it's absolutely understandable that we needed to focus on the physical aspect first to make sure we didn't overload our healthcare system. But now that we have successfully managed to do that, I think the impact of our mental health is going to be much more apparent over the next months to years. Looking at the evidence from any disaster, whether it's a pandemic or an earthquake, the psychosocial impact of the disaster is far greater than the medical one, and it lasts much longer. The directives that had to be imposed in order to limit the spread of the infection in terms of social or physical distancing, they have had huge impacts on society. What does research from past pandemics or disasters Tell us about how mental health is affected in situations like this one. The um, experience from SARS where social isolation, normally um, when somebody is responding to a stressor, they will cope with it by increasing the amount of social contact that they have. And of course, that has been one of the fundamental things that's different about the current situation in that that social connectivity, despite our best efforts and despite encouragement to separate physical distancing from social distancing, you know, has led to uh, significant problems. The other thing that we know from past research is it's what happens immediately after a disaster that actually predicts the mental health impact. There is an opportunity for us to engage now and to shape the outcome of those that experience significant mental health problems. And that means that society and workforces and the government need to start paying attention to um, the more vulnerable amongst us, those with pre-existing mental illness to begin with. They need to start attending to the elderly by virtue of the impact of cocooning and the double whammy of both the medical and the mental health consequences of the virus. And most importantly, we need to start attending to frontline care workers where we already know um, occupational stress is disproportionately high. And by virtue of the job that they're doing, that's going to be a significant um, stressor for them. The last group that the UN have identified as being at particular risk for adverse mental health outcomes is um, adolescents and the young population, you know, the 15 to 25 year olds. And that's because uh, adolescents are social animals. They get all their support from uh, social supports. The impact of sudden changes in education. Young people typically also maybe are more likely to cope maladaptively. 
by using alcohol. And research that has come out in Canada has shown an increased uh, use of alcohol in this age group. And that actually leads to a depletion of resources. So you've spoken about the impact of the lockdown and social restrictions on our mental health. But there is another, less spoken about element, which is the direct impact of the virus itself on our mental health. Can you tell us about that? The actual virus itself is neurotropic and neurotoxic. So it gets into the nervous system. And uh, we're beginning to see increasingly data from Wuhan in China and indeed in our own hospitals that there's an increase of presentation with uh, neurological sequelae. SARS-CoV-1 had a significant increase in neuropsychiatry presentations, encephalitis, delirium, dementia. What they have looked at uh, from uh, SARS in particular is that, uh, and what we know also from this virus is that you know, it gets in predominantly through the nasal passage. And it's actually one of the salient uh, symptoms now is anosmia, uh, an inability to smell. And that's because the virus is neurotropic. It likes the nervous system and it can get into the nervous system. And as you appreciate, you know, your nose is not far at all away from your brain. It's not yet known whether the virus migrates from the um, nasal nerves into the brain and whether that is one of the mechanisms of neuropsychiatric or neurological sequelae. The, the MRI of brains show abnormalities from previous SARS work, but not yet. Uh, there isn't sufficient data from the current uh, pandemic. So we mustn't think that the psychological impact is just going to happen by virtue of maybe post-traumatic stress disorder which and anxiety, which are often the initial types of presentations. But this will continue for years to come. Um, once individuals' resolve starts being depleted, we will begin to see an overwhelming increase in uh, mental health problems. Fiona, there are so many different elements uh, to this virus that can affect people's mental health at the moment. Fear of the virus itself, loss of employment, being cooped up at home, tense relationships and massive uncertainty or combinations of these factors. What are you seeing and hearing from people? If I can talk anecdotally about my clinical service in Crumlin, and firstly, uh, there is that neurotoxic component where uh, young children have presented with psychotic states where the it's, it's not that they are COVID positive, but it's children who have had an anxiety about COVID and who, where that has become incorporated into their psychopathology. So they have had delusional beliefs that they're infected with COVID, uh, that they may be um, at risk of infecting others. And that has led, led to uh, dangerous behavior on their part as they have been acting uh, you know, in that belief. We've also seen an increase in anxiety relating to COVID and other family members, and anxiety such as hypervigilance, where a young person doesn't want to sleep for fear that their parents or other people may succumb to the illness. I know in our adult colleagues, they have seen an increase in OCD on account of the understandable focus on hand washing and respiratory etiquette that the public health um, leaders have been advocating. But if you're already prone to concerns about contamination and uh, 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 an anxiety, have you actually carried through that? You can see how easily it is that OCD features would be increased. Interestingly, we've had a number of cases linked with eating, uh, psychopathology and weight loss, uh, where the onset of anorexia nervosa has been almost precipitously triggered by the lockdown and an inability to carry out normal exercise regimes. 
which was a balanced approach to a young person being happy with their body image. And in the absence of being able to do that, an over-focus on uh, calorie restriction in the absence of an ability to over-exercise led to significant weight loss where a young person was admitted medically malnourished. And um, we also see the impact, as you mentioned, Deirdre, of the lockdown on families. And um, not every family has access to outdoor space. Not every family is not in an uncrowded situation. And there may be other family members or indeed more than one, or you may be homeless and living in hotel accommodation. And so the fact that suddenly all the children are not going to school, parents may not be going to work. The amount of expressed emotion in the family situation can be huge. It has led to an increase in calls to abuse lines, domestic violence lines, both in Ireland and nationally. But it has also led to presentations in the hospital where parents really recognize that they're having huge difficulties with parenting and coping with the parental stresses. We've had some young people uh, who would have neurodevelopmental difficulties like ASD, autism, learning difficulties, who really had benefit by the structure and the routine of going to school, after school respite provision, weekend respite provision, looking forward to the July school provision. And when all of that was stopped and the child didn't have the understanding to understand that this is all because of a virus, um, we know in the elderly population, there has been a significant increase in social isolation and depression uh, and inability for them to get the usual supports from family and loved ones. And um, that has led to significant distress and indeed presentations to psychiatry. But I guess, Deirdre, what we also are afraid of is that individuals with new onset mental health problems or indeed deteriorations in mental health may also not be presenting when they should for either fear of uh, infection if they present to services or because when they contact their service, uh, they're encouraged to perhaps consider telepsychiatry and not everybody has access to telepsychiatry. Also that their usual staff member um, may be on sick leave and so it's difficult to re-engage with somebody else. So we are worried that people may be suffering at home out there without accessing services. And obviously it's really important to say that we do want people who have mental health issues to come and they will receive services. We're advocating that we plan better for services going forward, but uh, we do want people to contact us. That's quite a litany of, of different effects uh, in real time, Fiona. Um, but of course, as you say, a, a lot of this, the impact of this will be known down the line. And in the same way that we ensured we had increased capacity to deal with the major surge or demand on our hospital system as a result of COVID-19. What are mental health services doing to prepare for the impact of the virus on people's mental health? And what, you know, what does the, the, the government record of, of, of relatively poor investment in mental health services mean in terms of our ability to respond to this? Well, first of all, I just mentioned where we were before COVID, Deirdre. Um, in Ireland, uh, 6% of the total budget went to mental health. And that had dropped significantly from a high of previous years and dropped ironically despite a recession where we know mental health problems increase, particularly linked with unemployment. So 
child psychiatry in particular were operating at just over 50% of what was recommended in a vision for change in 2004. And in addition to poor resourcing, we also know there were significant difficulties with retention of staff once they went into a service. So on the first hand pre-COVID, we had reduced resources, which have been long-standing, so it's very neglected. Secondly, we were becoming increasingly aware more laterally of the stress levels within medical services, health services, and more specifically, child and adolescent service. And a recent study that we carried out just about a year ago showed that about a third of child psychiatry consultants were suffering significant burnout and considered um, leaving their job in the previous uh, year, changing jobs as a result of the stress level they felt um, under. And more concerning, if asked to go back again and enter a specific career, a few of them would have entered child psychiatry as a career. So we were aware before COVID that we needed to focus on the occupational supports for the clinicians working within the mental health services. And now we have this perfect storm of event with COVID happening, with an increase in mental health need, with an increased demand exceeding capacity, which is rife for occupational burnout. In terms of what we are doing from um, individuals, uh, academic institutions, and the College of Psychiatry, we are trying to highlight uh, via yourselves, which we're very grateful for, to our to the government, to our ministers, and to the public at large, that mental health is central to well-being, and that with COVID we are going to experience a significant increase in mental health morbidity and mortality that will far surpass the medical consequences of the illness. And really, if the government realised this, it is an economic argument. We know that anxiety and depression are already costing trillions every year worldwide. We know that if you have mental health problems, your work productivity is reduced. If we don't improve the mental health, given that we are going to be facing a big economic recession post-COVID, that economic recession will be much, much deeper and will last much longer. And there's a direct link based on data presented from the UK, from the US, of additional attributable deaths to suicide linked with degree of unemployment. And we anticipate the unemployment rates post-COVID would be far higher than they were post our recent economic depression. Fiona, we haven't yet seen the updated version of the Vision for Change, um, but there has been a suggestion it will include a provision for uh, mental health services to be provided remotely via online therapy and counselling. How effective can that be? Tremendously effective. And this is one of the good things that perhaps COVID has brought. There is an evidence base already out there that uh, telemedicine and telepsychiatry in particular is effective Uh, We had been trying to uh, get that through the government. We had met uh, clinicians, academics in UCD, had met with Minister uh, Daly to advocate for a virtually delivered mental health uh, echo clinic. And sadly, we didn't get any traction on that. Resources are, are small and where staffing is difficult. So one of the benefits of COVID has been on account of the need to reduce the risk of infection, a swift or a transition as much as we could to non-face-to-face interviews. 
And what we're finding from patients that are, and this is anecdotal evidence as yet, the data has not come in from surveys in Ireland linked with COVID. Many of the families are enjoying the opportunity for the ongoing contact through telepsychiatry, preferably Zooming because of that nonverbal aspect. We are also aware that uh, clinicians value it, but they recognize there's a need to be trained adequately in it. So in terms of how you Zoom, where you Zoom, um, how you uh, ensure the safety of the Zoom call for the recipient, how you take into account how you're going to respond if there's a mental health risk, if the person seems like they are actively suicidal or if they're psychotic and need to be uh, seen uh, physically and brought to a more secure space. Uh, and also good record keeping. So again, there is training there. Uh, we have got clinical guidance on that. Our own services have done some seminars on telepsychiatry. There's a small group of people who, where telepsychiatry would not be uh, the best option, uh, either initially for the first assessment or for ongoing assessments. Um, a person who is very agitated, behaviorally disturbed or psychotic, a person who is very much at risk, you know they're at risk of suicidality, where you might need to respond immediately after your initial assessment. Also, where you do suspect that a person is oppressed in a, in a situation um, where there may be some abuse or psychological abuse going on and where you really want to afford, whether it's a child or an adult, uh, the, the, the security and the confidence of a one-to-one in a room session uh, where you're able to make sure that nobody else is coercing them to answer the questions. Going forward, we need to make sure that the government um, dedicates specific funds, you know, doubling of uh, the mental health funds for specialised mental health service would not be unreasonable. Um, and that the government would focus and commit to that. They would also commit alongside to making sure that the ongoing disparities in our community are not allowed to continue. Disparities by physical health, by mental health, by broadband structure, by the presence of having a home over your household. What we would really love, um, you know, the public, the media, society, all of us to realise is that my health and well-being is very dependent on yours. Uh, if, if you are healthy, both mentally and physically healthy, number one, you're not going to spread this virus in the most immediate terms. Number two, your mental health well-being will contribute to the economic recovery. Your mental health well-being will contribute to the mental health well-being of all of your family. And so we can't tolerate disparities where I'm okay, but you're not okay by virtue of either your genetic vulnerability, your uh, financial, your educational, your socioeconomic vulnerability. Of course, people who, who were being treated for mental health issues prior to all of this have had their services uh, curtailed in some way during this period. Are you seeing the effects of this now? Um, we are. But the first thing we're seeing is that um, for some people, uh, they're not attending, and especially in the immediate aftermath. I guess everybody was in survival mode. They locked down the hatches. They were so fearful they didn't move. But we definitely saw a reduction in presentations to services. And then slowly now, we're beginning to see an increase in um urgent uh, assessments. What we're not seeing as much of is the routine referral of cases. And uh, these cases will only continue to deteriorate. So if you have a child with anxiety or a child with ADHD, or you're worried about autism, um, an inability to commence an assessment and start intervening at the same time when the parent is also stressed with lockdown or unemployment or financial pressures, 
mean that what might have been a very easy uh, disorder to manage initially will start having additional comorbidities linked with a delay in treatment. That we know the longer the duration of untreated psychosis, the more difficult it is to treat later on, and even the risk of more neuropathology associated with it. So we are fearful that if we don't continue to um, outreach to the public and to primary care clinicians, also those phenomena might have been more evident when you were in a school setting where the teacher would have had a very important role in highlighting the beginning of clinical concerns, whether it's depression or anorexia or a child who seems to be responding to abnormal stimuli, or indeed at work, a person who might be behaving unusually or not attending. Because other people are not meeting with those people and being able to both tell the person themselves, I'm worried about you, or suggest to those that are you know, in a caring room, that person may continue with that illness for a lot longer and only present at the time of crisis in a much more uh, serious state. Fiona, from what you've been telling us, we have a real battle on our hands to preserve people's mental health in the years ahead. And yet, strangely, the pandemic hasn't just had a negative effect on mental health. It has had some positive effects too, hasn't it? There is an unusual group that actually... COVID has has been better for, for some people, those with social anxiety, where their biggest fear was interacting socially, maybe performing at work or in a school setting. They have actually experienced a significant reduction. So when we're doing follow-up therapeutic work with those with social anxiety, uh, anecdotally, they're reporting they're doing very well. And so what we're doing at a clinical level in CAMS is we're using that time to reinforce their resilience rather than saying, okay, we won't deal with you now, you're much better. But we're actually getting them to realize that their mood was so dependent on these, you know, irrational thoughts that they had when they were at work or when they were at school about other people misperceiving them. And so for that group, it can be very helpful. And for some of the eating disorder group, it's been mixed. So for some of them, um, because there hasn't been that socializing initially and that constant peer comparison, uh, they also haven't had to feel as worried about their own body image and how they fit in. Uh, although, as I explained to you, you know, we've had unusual presentations linked with COVID as well. There's been a lot of talk, Fiona, about creating a special programme, uh, an educational type programme during the summer for children with autism and special needs. How important would something like that be? Tremendously important. Um, the, the, there's so many ways it's important. If you just talk about the family issue, the broadest of all, the family issue, the parents, the, the unsung heroes that have been caring for children with disabilities. Even before COVID, we are aware that the resources and the respite for children with intellectual disabilities, again, is impoverished. So suddenly, in addition, they've been coping and struggling, and suddenly they're now in complete lockdown with a child who doesn't understand and their behavior is escalated. So the mental health stress on carers has been huge during this time. The second thing is the real benefit it has on the individual themselves by way of their mental health. And that is because they they had been in such a good place with the structure, with the routine. The staff there were trained to deal with them in a very um, sensitive, caring, low stress level, but getting the best out of the children. But the amount of hours that the child has been in education has reduced. 
And we have no idea yet of the impact that has on ultimate achievements. From the bit of research that is out there, we do think it leads to less productive outcomes. So for this group of children where the special expertise of the educational support to maximize their cognitive development, you know, what was given by specialist teachers, the fact that they now be getting an opportunity to go back to that is really, really reassuring and hopefully will happen. Fiona, thanks very much. My thanks to Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan who produced today's podcast and thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. We'll be back later in the week.